Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. First of all, a little bit of a review. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this particular idea space, and, um, and I'm going to kind of make that fairly concise because it's available elsewhere, but um, you might recall that I suggested that how we imagine the divine has a direct bearing on how we assemble what we believe. I'm increasingly partial to the idea, uh, the, the metaphor of Lego with this whole spirituality thing. And I discovered this past week that there is actually a certification available that includes Lego as a brand called Serious Play that's actually about facilitating like organizational conversations using Lego. And I'm, I'm seriously pursuing this information about this certification because it seems to me like that would just be, how much fun would that be, right? Let's reimagine our organization. By the way, here's the Lego box. woo Anyway, that's what I imagine when I think about assembling spirituality in the 21st century West. We actually have all these pieces that are sort of fair game and they, they all got dumped into the common Lego box, just like the one at the back of the room. Take the lid off and go, this, 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 you know. And there are other factors, but we have, a, we have a kind of cultural permission and space when it comes to this project as human beings that's, that's a bit unusual in the history of the Western world, for sure, and, and something that I think is great. And I, I illustrated that with the example from the Hebrew tradition that contrasted some notions about God as holy with some Jesus teachings that, that talked about God is compassionate. And I summed that up this way. I said that if we assemble what we believe guided by an idea like God is holy, so we need to be holy, this sort of First Testament text, and we understand that by holy we mean set apart, which is what the word actually means, then we're going to come up with systems of belief. If that's what guides us, we're going to come up with systems of belief that reinforce that set apart from others aspect of what we believe and how we live out what we believe. If we start with that, other, with that idea, those are the shapes we tend to generate. If we assemble what we believe guided by a notion like God is compassionate, so we need to be compassionate, which is sort of how Jesus described the divine, then we're going to come up with systems of belief that reinforce that. And, and I fleshed it out a little bit this way. I said that set apart thinking tends to circle the group and look inwards toward making sure that we're doing what is understood by the group to be right. And that, that tends to make that shape of community, that sort of shape of behavior. And... If be compassionate, in contrast to that, tends to look outwards, then it tends to, it tends to generate communities that are trying to imagine how they could participate in making a better world for everyone, not just for those that are in the group that's doing the, the acting in the world, if you will. So if, as Jesus was teaching, the energy that underpins and fuels this whole thing that we call life could be defined as compassion, which is one of the ways that, that the rabbi defined that force, that energy, the other way that Jesus defined that energy was as love. So not loving, it's not anthropomorphization. It was just like this thing we use God language for is love. 
is compassion. If we kind of are in that space, then we need to understand that compassion has these different aspects, both sort of the tender and the fierce variety, and that that energy, like compassion, is for everyone. It's not for a set-apart group. It's actually, it's actually in the, the fullest orb sense of this word, universal. And that kind of perspective means that a belief like God is ours and you can have him too, but only if you become like us, does not hold up very well. It just won't survive in the soil of, of the divine equals compassion. So instead of that, what that sort of belief suggests is that whatever the energy is that keeps this whole thing going, one of the defining characteristics of compassion is that it is for everyone and everything is included in it. Be inspired by that. Imitate that. That's sort of where that kind of a system would go. And that's where I want to pick it up for the balance of our time today and, and, uh, and expand on a little bit going forward. So in lots of ways, this is a conversation about change. Uh, it's about a conversation about world making of the, you know, let's see if we can make it better variety. So that's kind of the big space. And that space is an interesting and complicated space. And, and I want to try to illustrate that complexity simply. Lots of ways we could talk about what makes that space complex. I'm going to focus on the tension between what I'm going to call complicity and agency. So generally speaking, now more than ever, we live in a world where we are embroiled in world events. We have this growing awareness that we are all part of systems that at least at some points oppress others and that that's pretty much an inescapable reality of life in the world, uh, at least in, um, in our part of the world, culturally speaking. I don't think it's unique to that, but I think it has some unique shapes here. And we might think about this when we go shopping for a new pair of jeans, and we're kind of like, is this a brand that actually provides safe working conditions and fair wages to its laborers? We might think about that when we are... Um, going to a restaurant. Is this a restaurant that is known to treat its staff fairly, a food delivery company? Some of us have stepped away from some of those because of um, what's become apparent, what we've become aware of in terms of how they treat the people who work for them and so on and so forth. So this is the kind of thinking we might do about systemic participation in things that, that harm others. It might cross our minds when we become aware of yet another indigenous community that's now taking its turn at locating and marking unmarked graves of children who died in church and state-run residential schools. We might be sort of shifting our thinking about that as history gets retold from vantage points that need to be revealed. We might start to understand that those are that we're talking about human beings who are victim of a program that branded itself as civilizing while behaving more like a, a brutal factory whose end product was conformity or death. That, that changes the way we think, right? That changes the way we engage with the world. We might even recognize that the religion we grew up in, if we grew up in Christianity, was part of that system, or that the bigger thing that we label Christianity has you know, been in bed with the state since at least the Middle Ages in terms of European history, combining huge amounts of power in self-interested ways that can easily make victims of the exact people that the institution claims to be there to serve. On a good day, <laughs> on a good day, that's messy. And on almost any day, it's heartbreaking. And while we may be able to make the case that we didn't do X, whatever the bad thing is, it's much harder to make the case that we're not part of the systems made by those that did whatever X is in that sentence. And so that's one way to think about the complicit part of this. And the other part is agency. So as individuals, we know that we've got some power. We have some agency. It's not, uni it's not uniform. It's different for different ones of us, but we have some. 
Uh, in a democracy, one of our cherished ideas is that that agency gathered together actually constitutes governance. I know it's easy to be cynical about this, um, but I also believe that it's the collective power of people choosing to act to use their agency that changes things. And that's a, that's a cherished belief for me. I, I'm not ready to let that one go uh, just yet. And in many ways, that's why I find the idea of fierce compassion so compelling. I don't know if this will be helpful or not, but we might also use the language of compassionate action if we feel like fierce compassion is too much like self-contradictory language. And for some of us, it would feel that way. So in general terms, what I want to do this morning is just open that idea of fierce compassion up a little bit and say, what are some of the features of fierce compassion? How can we know when that's sort of what we're talking about or looking at or drawing on in our own lives or feeling like I need to, I need to find whatever gear fierce compassion is because that's, I need some of that for this circumstance. We could think of fierce compassion as including qualities like strength, or courage, or empowerment, and especially as those strengths, those qualities might be applied to the confrontation of social injustice and to the work necessary to address and change things that are not well in our world. It also contains, fierce compassion also contains an element of anger. And when we last explored this topic, I used the illustration of the mama bear's response when she perceives a threat to her cubs. It comes from a place of nurturance, but she sure looks like she's mad. (laughs) You know, it looks like anger. And some of us have grown up around experiences that have taught us things about anger that might make this whole idea hard to entertain. For some, anger has been the signal to hide because the angry person in their world is a danger to them on some level. For some, and I would include myself here, anger was characterized as some kind of character flaw or moral failure. At the very best, it was a sign of lack of self-control. If you actually expressed anger, you needed to you needed a timeout so you could get a grip because what you were expressing was just inappropriate categorically. And of course, there's some possible merit to all those perspectives. Out of control, anger can be dangerous and it can be harmful, of course. On the other hand, suppressed anger is not anger that has gone away. It's just anger that's gone underground, and it's going to come out somewhere sometime. Squishing down our anger can diminish our determination to speak the truth about systemic injustice and about the misuse of power, both in our personal lives and in the wider world. On the other hand, (laughs) letting our anger run amok can cause irreparable harm both to ourselves and to others. So there's a tension there, isn't there? adds complexity. And the key, it seems to me, if we're going to try to sum it, as so many wise teachers have both taught and shown, is to acknowledge our feelings of anger, name them, and to harness or focus those feelings on changing things for the better. So to have that feeling and to work with it is different than to be that feeling and have it have us and be in control of us. Mindlessly reactive versus mindfully engaged, if you will. That's a tricky business sometimes, for sure. For example, if we don't consider the mama bear illustration with some attention to nuance, we might imagine that cursing at someone that has insulted a person we love is fierce compassion because it's protective. But it's not compassion. It's revenge. And those are not the same thing. Protests about Issues of social justice often bump into this complexity as well. Martin Luther King, you know, a champion of 
nonviolent protest, once said that, quote, riots are the language of the unheard. That said, when the pent-up anger at injustice spills over into the destruction of an innocent person's property, that's not only not fierce compassion, but it's likely to produce more violence, which is often the exact dynamic that that's, that's at the root of what's being protested. And so we can see that fierce compassion is both powerful and it's complex to enact, and that might in itself keep some of us from considering it a viable form of agency. It might just feel a little bit too hot potato-y. Uh, not, our th- not our thing. And of course, compassion has more than one face, as we already talked about, right? The, the face we're most familiar with is nurturance. And some of us are going to do our best work in the world around compassion as nurturers rather than as activists, for example, if we want to paint it that way. And that's legitimate as well, but it's just important to sort of know what the dynamic is. So, in light of all that, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking a way of evaluating our, our own actions with the particular goal of being able to tell what is actually fierce compassion and what might be something else. So a little bit of equipping, uh, if you will. And to do that, I want to introduce us to an idea that comes to Western thought from Buddhist practice. We often can recognize in these kinds of teachings something that we might call common sense. That is not an unusual experience, particularly for the Western mind dealing with Buddhist teachings, which do not have at their root a Christian understanding of there being a divine entity. There's no named God running in the background. There's spirituality, absolutely, but it doesn't have a recognizable shape if you grew up around the Christian ideas of the divine and human interaction, right? Which is one of the reasons why there's books out there like Buddhism Without Spirituality, right? So just like it's an actual title. So people are kind of like, I love these teachings. I don't regard myself as a spiritual person. I don't regard the universe as a spiritual place but I can recognize these teachings as being about the good things I want to practice. How do I engage with that? And so that's a, that's a feature that often marks the way Buddhist teachings come into the Western world and find lots of traction there. Don't have to go that path, but it's possible to go that path. I would say that it, one way to look at this would just be to think about all the people that you know, maybe this includes yourself, who would really benefit from a way of thinking about values or qualities that are deep down good, but for whom the ideas about God that they grew up with are just no longer working. And they want to engage with those values, but they want to do it in a way that doesn't come with that particular baggage. Now, there are other people for whom that's not baggage. For other people, that's rocket fuel, you know, and everything in between, right? So, but I wanted to mark that about this. That's a space that lots of Buddhist teachings can fit into. And I would argue that it is not coincidental that most of Jesus' teachings can do that as well, and I've often approached them that way in this space, but... That can be uniquely difficult to do if we've been taught that we're somehow not allowed to do it. Or that if we do it, we're actually engaging in a kind of spiritual space that's hazardous. That we've put ourselves on the path to perdition, destruction, eternal something that's not good. Um, You know, destruction of some kind that's beyond our purview. We're going to be judged for that. can make it pretty tough to do. And also, if you grew up around... Uh, evangelical Christianity in particular, it requires a different sort of parsing of the texts than we grew up with. Like most of the ideas that are condemning about this project do not come from the teachings of Jesus that are recognizably most likely to be from Jesus as opposed to from those who are now building a new religion. So if you want, you can just take the whole Gospel of John and regard it as a different, sourced from a different cultural reality than the other red letter bits. And it alters the way you understand the teachings and who the teacher was. 
In any case, here's the idea. This, this is for you, pick it up. If it's not, don't. The idea, so this is back to that, that Buddhist notion that I was talking about. The idea is that of what's called near enemies and far enemies. Like I said, common sense. The concept's broadly applicable. I'm going to illustrate it from the Buddhist teachings to keep the ideas a little closer to their source, which I think is important. Uh, but also, you'll find, again, you'll find that this stuff just can flow into life pretty practically. In Buddhism, there are what are called, and this is the English translation, they're, they're called the four immeasurables, which I, right away I'm like, oh, the good stuff. The mysteries, right? And these are the four immeasurables. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, so not all joys, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So those are the four immeasurables in Buddhist teaching. Near enemies are almost always applied to those four teachings in that practice. Near enemies are states that appear similar to the desired state of being or practice, so they appear similar to loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, but actually undermine those immeasurables. So they look like them, but they don't actually make them stronger. They make them weaker. And not surprisingly, the near enemies are the trickiest ones to discern, right? Because they they look like the thing we actually want. So, for example, a near enemy of loving kindness would be sentimentality. Similar, but different. Not, Not the thing we're actually going for and something that could weaken it. And I think we're starting to recognize some of this. It's starting to show up, I know, in Tim and our conversations, for example, about the way the sentimentality shows up in literature and in film, for example, right? It's not necessarily a strengthening thing, and it is different than loving kindness, for sure. So that's an example of a near enemy. Far enemies, easier to, easier to locate, they're the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, right? So they, by contrast, they tend to stand out. So to stay with that same uh, immeasurable of loving kindness, a far enemy of loving kindness would be ill will, which we could define as animosity or bitterness. So if we're wondering if a practice of ours is actually loving kindness or something else, and it's, it's bitterness or animosity, it shouldn't be that hard to tell that it's not loving kindness, right? So that's the concept of far enemy. If we're getting confused about far enemies and the thing we're actually trying to accomplish, we need to back the truck up quite a ways uh, to get some perspective because <laughs> we're really lost at that point. Now, to plug this into our conversation about compassion, we might consider, for example, that pity is a near enemy of compassion and cruelty is a far enemy, right? Pity can kind of look enacted like compassion, but the way that it sees the other is very different than the way compassion sees the other. I'm not going to unpack that right now, but just to illustrate that near-far enemy point. So it's not that hard to see that the tricky enemies to spot are the near ones, the ones that look like what we're working to cultivate, but that actually undermine or weaken our understanding of it. They do not make our understanding more robust. They make it less so. If we want an example of this from the history of the Judeo-Christian stream of religion, we could observe that there's this sweeping command in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty, that doesn't kind of leave very many humans out, right? It's, it's about proximity, among other things, not about in-grouping and out-grouping, because we don't get to choose who our neighbors are. So that's a, that's a pretty big funnel. By the time that idea gets to John, <laughs> for example, if I seem like I'm giving John a rough ride, it, it's, it's because I think a lot has been made of what John has made of what Jesus was on about that is about Christianity, not about the rabbi. 
Is that legitimate? Yes. Do we need to distinguish these things from one another? Yes. So by the time this gets to John, who's, who's now writing to support this emerging religion of Christianity, and he's writing to support a difficult process for a cult, because that's what a religion is, right? It's cult plus time. Like, it starts off as an offshoot of whatever's dominant, and if it survives long enough to have its own gravity and its own mass and its own kind of impact in the culture, it gets legitimated and it's now a religion. Like, that's the way every religion in history has come to be. So it's a fascinating definition and one that if you're a historian, you'd be like, yeah, no problem. If you grew up inside a religion, you're like, who are you calling a cult? You know, or whatever, we can get bristly about it because of that word. But from a historian's point of view, it totally makes sense. So all to say, John is writing to try to help this small embattled group of people who are making a particular meaning out of the rabbi's teachings. He's trying to help them distinguish themselves from Judaism at this point in the conversation. They're trying to decide if they're Jews or not. And they're like, elbows up. No, we're not. We're not Jews. How, do we, how can we tell? Well, we've got to push back on things that are from that Jewish tradition. So if the Jewish tradition says, love your neighbor as yourself, voice of God in the tradition, right? John says, actually, what we should do is love one another. That sounds pretty good until you actually look at the text that it's from. And what he means is we should love fellow believers. We should love the others that are like us. Not a bad idea, but really different than love your neighbor when your neighbor includes whoever you happen to be in proximity with without choice in the matter. You see how one of these is different from the other. So that's the near enemy, far enemy conversation, right? Love one another is a near enemy of love your neighbor in that construct. If that makes sense. Now, there's ways we can kind of push back on that and expand one idea so it actually includes the other, and there's been some good work done around all of that. But as a way of illustrating how subtle this can be sometimes and how it takes work to kind of parse it, there's, a, there's an instance, all right? That's a rather cursory look at a rather big set of ideas for this particular talkie bit, and it's a rather unfinished place to stop, but that is all I'm going to say about it today. So in terms of our conversation here and, and lobbing, you know, lobbing an idea into the community and going, okay, let's let that one perk. That's, that's, all I'm gonna, that's all I'm gonna do with it. And then what's gonna happen going forward is we're gonna start to plug some of those notions into our considerations of how we might cultivate compassion in our thoughts, our words and actions, what it might look like, for example, to imagine a community as a place that is defined, one of its defining features is the practice of compassion.